Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome, uh, we're welcoming actually several new contributors this week. I want to introduce you to Isaac Willower. And Isaac, you're going to have to tell me, did I get your last name correct? Willower. Willower. Isaac Willower. That's what I meant to say. He's a Young Voices contributor. He is also an award-winning journalist and a, a corporate relations analyst. But you, man, it sounds like you wear a lot of different hats. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, ostensibly, the hat I should be wearing most at the moment is student. That's definitely completely how it turns out all the time. But yeah, my name is Isaac Willauer. I'm a senior at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And yeah, I do corporate relations at a corporate engagement firm called Boyer Research in Pittsburgh. Well, I I was reading a really intriguing article that that you've written here about... uh, Basically about how the DNC shouldn't be taking the the younger vote for granted. Now, I I have just seen in the last week a couple of different studies and and a a poll that really seems to show overwhelmingly, you know, younger voters are skewing to the left. But your message is, hey, (laughs) that vote can't be taken for granted. Talk to me about uh, how, how the DNC is trying to buy votes. Yeah, for sure. So basically, the, the, the current landscape, and it's one that everyone is pretty familiar with right now, is the fact, the unfortunate fact, that we are staring down what can be essentially dubbed the rematch from hell, right? This is a presidential election between two of the most polarizing candidates in recent memory. Nobody except people whose careers depend on this campaign happening are really excited about it. And well we're beginning to see, <laughs> yeah, and we're starting to see, as a result of that, I think we're starting to see the kind of behavior that only happens when everyone is really tired of both candidates involved, a.k.a. a tradi- a block that has traditionally been associated with the Democratic Party, which is voters of color, minority voters, are an increasing amount of them are breaking away from that historic loyalty, we could call it. And But the, the complicating factor that I talked about in the piece is that that doesn't mean that they're becoming conservative or registered Republicans necessarily, right? I'm I'm reminded of um, Candace Owens, prominent cultural commentator. Her Twitter bio is that black people don't have to be Democrats still. That is true, but it kind of epitomizes the problem we're in is that we it's not an argument that black people should be conservative or that voters of color should care about the Republican Party. But yet we are beginning to see that. And I would argue, and as I do argue in the piece, that is largely the fault of the Democratic National Convention, this $35 million new voting by vote scheme, which is essentially what it is to buy votes for Joe Biden when he himself has proven that he is shockingly unable to win those kind of votes without the money. And it just begins to sound a lot like buying votes, which for minorities just really kind of sets off alarm bells. Oh, and and well, it should. I I like how you explain this as though it's this is really you know we, we always have had years well you know you vote the lesser of two evils i'll hold my nose yeah. and vote for it but but really this year i it's almost like people are being marched up <laughs> to the voting booth with a yeah. pointy stick come on get in there it's not good choose yeah. one you have yeah. to choose come on pull the lever pull the lever what are we doing yeah 100%. so what and it doesn't feel good talk to me about some of the alternatives though um we'll just step outside of the voting paradigm for a second sure Assuming that voting works, but um, we have other places that we can put our energy to. And I'm, I'm just, mm-hmm. from, from your perspective, what are some of the places where we can put our energy where, where, where it counts, you know, where it actually yeah. it, it moves the needle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as a devout Christian myself, I mean, I obviously look to social institutions like the church as a primary source of these kinds of things. And I mean, I think we are seeing some, there are at least some polls that are indicating that people are beginning to look at institutions like the church, even which just like a very staunchly religious institution, obviously it's the church, but they are starting to look at that as a, as a space of social benefits, 
that they cannot get elsewhere, including people from my generation, because my generation is very lonely. We're very underrepresented in terms of using social institutions. And there's a real sense in which we are starting to rediscover institutions of meaning outside of politics because, and there are a lot of young people who don't do this, and I know this as someone who's under 30 and in the political sphere, there are a lot of people who just try and make politics something that it's not. Like we talk about the term politically homeless. You're not looking for a home in politics, though, and it's a mistake to do so because it will not satisfy you because it really is a rat race of dopamine and then just feeling absolutely burned out at the end of the quadrennial cycle. It's not good, and I think we are beginning to see people looking outside of that, which is, I think is really, really good, as important as I think politics is and as crucial as I think it is for people with good Judeo-Christian values to be involved in the political sphere. We all have influence. Involved fully, yeah, we all have influence. We can cultivate that in different spheres. I mean, if you're, if you're a teacher, you should focus maybe, I would say, a little bit less on out-tweeting your neighbor and maybe more on being the best teacher that you can. That's easy for me because it's like I'm in a job that hinges on me being politically active. So like how convenient. But that's what I would say. And even in my work as a corporate analyst, like not all of this is political. Some of it is about ensuring best business practice, regardless of who wins in November. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the buying of votes. I mean, look, there, there's an old tradition. Oh, everybody, you know, drinks are on me. You know, if you vote this yeah. way, there's a reason they outlawed, you know, alcohol at polling places. Absolutely. But Sometimes it's it's done a little more subtly, and and I think mm-hmm. what you were describing from the DNC probably fits that definition. Um, how much how much do they figure it costs you know to get somebody's vote these yeah, days? I mean, the answer apparently is thirty five million dollars. I'm so the I'm I'm not sitting inside James Carville's head, nor am I sitting inside James Clyburn's head. But what I what I would guess would be this the tactic if I were sitting in that chair would be, I mean, when it comes to racial insularity especially the kind of things that are going to really resonate with voters of color. Donald Trump is not exactly the most nuanced character in this, or I would argue really any regard. And it's very easy for him to, when he says things like talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of our nation, we can talk about what that actually means. But if you're in the DNC, you're looking at that and you're seeing dinner because you see this is marketing material, but then you have to pay for it. You have to actually get people on the ground to talk about those kinds of issues. We saw this in Senate elections. We saw this with people like Raphael Warnock, the the way they talk to minority voters. It's very clear we have to paint a position in which Republicans are racist and therefore the only interest, the only voting choice that makes sense within your interests is to vote for the Democratic Party. And that has worked for years and years and years. And for better or for worse, and we see this in moments like – Mark Fisher in, in Rhode Island, of Rhode Island BLM, who endorsed Trump and then promptly got kicked out of Rhode Island BLM because heaven forbid, you know, Black Lives Matter, but dissenting black voices, no shot. It, there, we have these moments where the loyalty is being broken and it's being moved away because people, certain people, an increasing percentage of voters of color believe that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party do not care about them. And that Trump, I mean, I talked about it in the piece, but um, Trump sent out giant stimulus checks with his name all over them. And people of any color see that as caring because and while that may be a cold, calculated political maneuver on Trump's part, and it very well might be, that comes across as caring. And Joe Biden so far has been massively not good at creating that kind of feeling among voters. And I think he's going to pay the price for that. Does that mean he's going to lose the black vote? No. Does it mean that Trump's going to win the black vote? No. It's possible. But 
we are looking at a situation in which the historic grasp on communities of color, voting communities of color, the Democratic Party has had, is being slowly eroded. And you can't reverse that trend with money. Man, it's uh, it just shows you how high the stakes are, though. You know, for for yeah. politics, and 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 I say that not you know how great that but I lament. No, but we got to the like, point where the stakes are that high, where it's pretty much anything goes. And yeah, you know, I mean, like, what would you spend thirty five million dollars to get? You could do not a lot of much, good with it, but for the you could do a lot of good with it, or an individual. you could go campaign for the Democratic Party. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's, it's well, and and I have to ask you about this. You know, I don't look at Trump as as you know. He's going to be the political savior. Um, there's a pretty yeah, no. stark choice, and it, and it really looks like the the choice is already narrowed to one extreme mm-hmm. or the other. But it appears there there is some support within the black community, especially that's swinging toward him. Is that a mm-hmm. product yeah. of of this guy? Just he just takes every shot and keeps on coming back. I maybe you know I I really don't know. Like there was this um, Paul believes at the New York Times talking about 22 percent of black voters in swing states are now. It's like not even just opposing Biden or straight up supporting Trump. Hmm. I mean, that means that something profound has happened. I mean, I think Trump's Trump's in in the be, in the most charitable reading of Trump, you have this moment where he sells himself as I am the victim of all these institutions that have been weaponized against me. Everyone is against me. And if you want to truly take down the deep state or the rhinos or insert whatever one of his best friends he has decided to turn on today. If you really want to take down those people, you you can jump on board and we're going to accept you. Now, we know that that may not be true, but for people, and I will say I, it's not just a black thing, voters of any color can can very easily be swayed by that. It's very persuasive. And especially if the alternative is Joe Biden saying that if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. This is just not how political momentum gets created, at least not the kind that Joe Biden, the DNC, wants. Man, I, I wish we had more time to, to cover this. We are unfortunately up against the clock. We are we're talking with Isaac Willauer. He is a Young Voices contributor. Um, I really I really love your piece on this. Did you know where where will people be able to pick that up? Where will it be published? Yeah, so it's at USA Today. You can read it online at usatoday.com or it's in the print edition today. Excellent. And for people who want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. I tweet or I post on X, whatever you want to call it, at Isaac Willauer. Very good. Great to meet you. Looking forward to talking again. Thank you so much for having me on. We'll see you. Take care. Welcome back. This is our second segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome another new contributor. Her name is Frances Floresca. Frances, welcome to the program. Great to make your acquaintance. Thanks for having me. So tell us just a little bit about yourself. We know you're a Young Voices contributor, but um, what else would you like us to know about who you are and what you do? I am someone who is very passionate about public policy and fighting for solutions. You know, we can always complain about um, people making decisions in D.C. or just political arguments in general, but I am someone who loves to talk about solutions and how ideas can benefit families regardless of who they are or where they are from. 
Well, you've got a doozy of an article that I just was looking at on Chalkboard News about uh, a bit of an uproar in Arizona. And how do we properly frame this? This comes back to education savings accounts. And maybe you could help us bring us up to speed. How did Arizona get education savings accounts? Arizona was the first state in the entire country to actually get education savings accounts. And virtually, it's been a successful program. Back then, it wasn't for everyone. It was for military families, children in failing schools, and um, um, tribal students. But since uh, 2022, they were one of the first states to get universal school choice. And since since then, around 70,000 students have been on it. And students aren't able just aren't able to just choose a school that works for them but they can also use these funds to customize their education whether that's for curriculum tutoring or as i've mentioned in the article ski passes music (laughs) lessons and legos which are all very important to how we can look at education because they are very educational tools I know that uh, you you point out in the article this caused an uproar, you know, with opponents of of school choice, especially in the form of BSAs. Well, look at this; they're squandering this on on things that are fun, and and I just have to laugh partly because I've I've been a homeschooling dad, and I've seen I've seen the different form that lessons can take. And skiing and Legos may seem like just playtime, but uh, it's it's astonishing what a person can learn, you know, if they're in a, in a learning attitude. Exactly. And, you know, I see this with my son. He's only one. He's not in school yet. But I have learned so much from parents and child caretakers that play is such a vital form of education and learning because it stimulates not just creativity, but also stimulates their brain and helps them develop a path going forward into their future and education. And that's what um, is amazing about ESAs is because you get to choose how education works for children because every child is different. No, that see now this makes perfect sense to me. Now I, I understand that opponents of ESAs, you know, they're, they're upset about this, but as, as I hear their objections, it seems like a lot of it just has to do with, well, this is something we don't feel that everybody can afford. And isn't that kind of one of the, the points of, you know, those students who, who have access to these ESAs is in, in some ways it levels the playing field, giving them opportunities to, to pursue their own education. I mean, I, I guess I'm not seeing where there's a, there's a cutoff there if, if it's below a certain, uh, you know, income level. Um, in Arizona, it is specifically for everyone now but back then it was for those lower income families and military families but uh, the beauty of ESAs and just school choice in general is that it allows these families low-income families especially to access education opportunities and whether that they want to use those funds for um, private schools micro schools or other learning opportunities such as homeschool curriculum and such they can use those funds and, you know, it levels that playing field because some of these families don't even want to be in public schools for very a variety of reasons. Their child might not be enjoying school or their child um, may be bullied or and there's some of those ideologies that are creeping into our classrooms and families shouldn't be paying twice into a system that... <clears throat> That doesn't that won't help them. So they shouldn't be paying for public school, or they should be shouldn't be paying for other 
education opportunities. So they should be only paying once. So that's why these ESAs give back to families so they can use funds for whatever works for their children. You mentioned specifically music and and uh, how those funds could be used for music lessons. And I think, you know, what that's that's like getting that's that's getting more bang for your buck than than you know sometimes kids get just from from going to band class. Yes, and as someone who studied music, I even studied music my first year of college. So music has been a part of me growing up. My parents sacrificed so much financially for my family to participate in music lessons and music really helped me just prepare for the future and you know for the ACT and um and tests, I didn't have to study as much because I felt like music actually helped relax me and prepare me for this. Of course I studied, but there was music that helped prepare me truly for exams and big projects and other activities. So I, I have to ask, I'm sure that in Arizona as well as other states that that have school choice, this opens up opportunities for, for people who are very serious about education. In other words, uh, you know, privatized approaches, whether it's, um, you know, school pods or, or whatever, there's, a, there's basically the innovation is pretty much endless. But I, I'm curious, are, are they seeing the same kind of suspicion, you know, well, why would these ESAs be spent on fun things? Do, do the people who want to, to get into the business of educating, are they viewed with suspicion? In other words, treated like, are you just trying to start a grift here? Definitely. And people have actually called some of the biggest school choice advocates grifters. But the reality is that the opposite is quite true. These school choice advocates truly have seen how education currently works. And this modern education system was created in a way that stifles a way of thinking. And they want everyone to think and lead their life the same way. But the reality is that every person is different and you want more opportunities and children to explore their interests and explore their needs because every child truly deserves an education that works for them. I could not agree more. So what does this uh, what does this portend for for other states? Is this is this going to uh, more likely tip the needle towards or, or against, uh, you know, support for school choice, it, it always seems to come down to, um, you know, there's, there's, there's pretty much a split right down the middle on that. There is a split down the middle. We've seen in states that should already have school choice, ESAs like this, like Texas, Idaho, and in Georgia, like these are states you'd probably think would already have ESAs, but they don't. That's because they're and people are kind of afraid of something new. And we need to encourage them. It's like, hey, this won't hurt your public schools. This won't hurt different forms of um, education. This is going to actually help and improve education for everyone. So regardless of whether you go to a public school, private school, micro school, or homeschool, this, these ESAs are going to benefit everyone. Well said. Again, we are talking with uh, Frances Floresca. She is a Young Voices contributor and... Uh, Francis, uh, where I'd like to know where people could go to get you know more information on this issue. Assuming maybe they're in one of those battleground states. So people can go online to virtually a lot of school choice or education websites. So there's Excel in Ed, there's Ed Choice, 
There's um, American Federation for Children. And of course, National School Choice Week and National School Choice Awareness Foundation. These are organizations that are amazing in pushing school choice initiatives around the country. And you should all and you should always be involved in your state legislature, always watch for bills, talk about education savings accounts, and be involved. Go to your state capitol, talk to your state lawmakers and encourage them to vote in favor of education savings accounts. Very good. And where can people find you on social media? On social media, I can be found at Francis and Flo on Instagram and Twitter. And they, you can follow me there. <laughs> and I have a good amount about school choice and just education in general. Welcome back. This is our third segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to welcome a familiar voice back to our program. I want to welcome Akila Jayaram. And you'll forgive me if, if I mispronounced your name, but welcome. It's, it's good to talk with you once again. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me again. So the last time we talked, we were talking about uh, the importance of being able to attract young minds and to uh, mm-hmm. to hold young minds and and keep them in a in a society where uh, you know where you want to see progress made. You want to you want to see growth. Um, and it looks like we're, we're going to be talking about something very similar. The article that uh, I have before me is about innovation districts could hold the key to the UK's leveling up. Before mm-hmm. we jump into your article, though, take a moment and just. For the sake of those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about your background and who you are. Okay, thank you so much, Brian. So I have just completed my PhD in biophysics at the University of Cambridge, and I'm now sort of pivoting into commercial law, so slightly sort of different arenas. But I think I've always had an interest in science policy, and that's where this article is coming from. Okay. So uh, when we talked about, uh, I, I don't remember if we touched on innovation districts before, but introduces to the idea when we talk about an innovation district what all might that entail so i think the innovation district is something that's a sort of holistic approach so you not just have the people which i sort of spoke about in my previous article but also the infrastructure the housing the transport that comes along with all this sort of to um really boost growth so it's not just um, dealing with surface level issues but it's about bringing it all together in one space so you have academics policy makers you have small businesses you have small startups and ones that are a bit bigger so you have them all in one place so that could really sort of cross-pollinate ideas cross-pollinate people and uh, bring about innovation so that's the whole idea about these innovation districts that i'm proposing wow that's, I mean, that does raise some exciting possibilities, doesn't it? Indeed, it does. So what are the biggest obstacles to, to bringing these, these types of concepts together currently? Mm-hmm. So I think the government is sort of trying to move in this direction. So in my article, I mentioned that uh, there has been a grant of £100 million pounds, uh, aimed at leveling up funding. And I think in Greater Manchester, they've already earmarked £1.4 billion pounds to develop an innovation district. But I sort of see three main obstacles. 
So the first one is planning permission. I think I've written about this extensively outside Young Voices as well. Um, I mean, everything in the UK is blocked by people who say that oh, there is not a sufficient uh, consultation, there's a blocking of my view and so on. And I think the latest casualty of that was the HS2, which is supposed to be a high-speed rail line between uh, London and Manchester. It would have you know, brought together so many people, so many jobs for people uh, commuting on, on that line, but it's just been scrapped because the amount of planning permission sort of really ballooned the costs. Wow. I think the second obstacle is attracting external investment. So I think in the UK we have a, a sort of habit of relying on the state to provide this, but we know that we need millions and billions of pounds if we want to have the next Amazon or Google. Uh, so originating in the UK. So I was uh, suggesting that you know, taxation could be a way to solve that. Uh, and I think the third one, which we've touched upon in previous articles, is talent. And in this article, I've sort of not just addressed the you know, barriers to getting overseas people. I think immigration, the immigration rhetoric right now is quite high, like tensions are high at the moment. People are saying, oh, we'll have a salary threshold in place, but I'm sort of concerned how this would affect attracting talent to the UK. And I, I think homegrown talent is just as important. We need uh, sort of more entrepreneurial education. We need you know, regional accelerators. People from all of the UK should be able to access these, not just those uh, based in London and the Southeast. Wow. Well, I, I have to admit the, the solutions that you're putting out there, I think make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Can I go back for a second to that second obstacle? One thing you talked about was exemptions on taxes for companies for a limited period of time. I've heard this before too, and, and I think it sounds counterintuitive. If you lower or reduce taxes, you know, a company will actually generate more revenue than if you simply raise the tax rates. Is, mm -hmm. is that kind of the thinking behind that, that approach? Yeah, so I think that's why I sort of qualified it by saying it needs to be for a time-limited period. So, uh, of course, businesses should not be able to sort of avoid tax for the entirety of their sort of existence. But I think we need to give them that little boost to start with. And I think in the UK, we had one of the most business-friendly corporate tax, uh, corporation tax regimes. It was 19%. But now for slightly larger companies, it's 25%. And that's already sort of seen a, a sort of decrease in the tax intake for the government. So I think we have seen that in, in real time, and that would be something that's an easy fix uh, to look at in the sort of next budget when they put, put that out. And then uh, let's talk again about talent. I think the last time mm -hmm. we spoke, one of the things that you had pointed out that uh, um, that I, I remember is, you know, it's, it's not enough just yeah, come here and go to school, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a desire to, to bring those brilliant minds, you know, to these areas and then make them want to stay stay here, raise yeah. a family, you know, and enjoy, enjoy life here, teach. Yeah. So I think, uh, again, moving to the, some of the statistics that was published today, people were saying that those who come here to study tend to go into lower skill jobs, but I think we should really look into why that's happening. Is it because, you know, the visa costs are not really affordable or is it because, uh, you know, the salary isn't that high. So, and also the housing costs, it's increased exponentially over the last couple of years. So I think these are all aspects that uh, we would need to consider if we want to keep the talent that's come here to study and make them want to stay here as well. And be, where, where you have just completed, you know, a, a PhD program, mm -hmm. um, maybe you could speak to this a little bit. Typically, when, when people are attending school to, to get, you know, an advanced degree like this, is it is there an intention to, look, I get the degree and then go out to the world or somewhere else I'm going to take it? Or 
do you find that there are those who, who look for a reason to stay with, you know, the the institutions that mm-hmm. uh, through which they, they've earned their degrees? Yeah, so I think I'm someone who sort of left academia, so with a heavy heart, though. Uh, but I think that's becoming increasingly prevalent. Most people want to leave because academia is no longer uh, lucrative. But but the interesting trend is people are starting their own businesses uh, based on sort of in- innovative ideas, and they're also going to startups. So that might not be a bad thing, really. Uh, but some of them do prefer the U.S. and other countries in Europe. So we need to sort of look as to why that's happening. Is it because it's just not as friendly as an environment here? And I think I touched upon the sort of approach, the scattered approach that's been adopted in the UK in the past. So we have science parks all over the UK. You have, we have some in Exeter, Cambridge, Bristol, and so on. But they're all sort of isolated. They're not joined up and they're almost an afterthought. They, they're just built there and then they hope that companies will move in there and people will come there. But I, that's why I proposed innovation districts where, you know, you make it so attractive that people don't want to leave, basically. Well, and something happens when you when you get a lot of really brilliant minds in the same room. It's, you know, the candle power increases, you know, for yeah, whatever problems think, you're trying to solve. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the UK needs to go back to its traditions of being the center of the industrial revolution. They made that happen. So, we need to get back there, in my opinion. Um, one thing that you had mentioned too, and I don't know if this is just an attitude that you know that comes, especially you know with with older um, older voters or, or whatever. But mm-hmm. that that idea of like the rail the rail line, the high speed rail that, that was shut down because mm-hmm. well, you know, somebody found a reason. Okay, I've I've learned a lot of this by watching Jeremy Clarkson's farm, but the amount of of things that a person may want to do that are subject to another person's approval or maybe many other people's approval is pretty staggering. Is is that a trend that's likely to continue or is there going to come a point where people are going to say, you know, we could, we could probably lighten up a bit? So I think it all depends on younger people going out to vote. So until you have the older sort of generation being the electorate that goes out and sort of makes their voice heard, this is going to continue. But I think if the younger people sort of revolt or they advocate (laughs) for other policies, it could be a a possibility. But I think the younger generation really needs to wake up to the power of advocacy and being involved in policy making as well. And that's something that I, I think that they should really push forward because otherwise you'll have the older generations representing you forever. Yeah. And, and frankly, as I'm getting to be one of those older generations, I'm like, oh, well, now I see people want to keep things simple and keep, you know, keep it the same. I'm sure there's a middle ground. And, and I'm certain that the, the work that, that you're doing, among many mm-hmm. others, is going to be where that uh, that happy center is, is found. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we are visiting with Akila Jayaram. And tell everybody where they can, first of all, find you on social media. And then, then let's talk about where they can find this article. So I am mostly on X, formerly Twitter, as Akila underscore Jairam. So that's just my name. Okay. And then uh, the article that, that we've been discussing, where where will that be published? So it's already been published. It's on a, a website called Mia. Okay. Very good. And, of course, we have show notes that, uh, that will go along with this episode, too, if you'd like to learn more. Um, Akila, thank you so much. Great to visit with you once thank again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.
And welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices, our fourth and final segment today. And we are happy to welcome Young Voices contributor James Irwin. James, this is your first time on the show. Take a moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Brian, great to be here. Um, calling in from Washington, D.C., where neither the people nor the weather are anywhere near as pleasant as in Utah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm originally from Maine, and uh, the piece I wrote uh, was about um, some legislation that was was moving forward in Maine, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, but I uh, was born and raised there, and then I came down to D.C. to work for my senator for a few years, and now I work on tech policy, uh, become a, really a, a telecom policy expert, and that's the field I've focused on. But um, branching out into commentary now as well and on cultural issues and on free speech and uh, what the proper role of government is and answering all of those important questions. Oh, man, you jumped right into the deep end of the pool on this article, and it's, and it's great. Um, yeah. your, your article is titled Disagree on Gender in Maine. That's no longer allowed. Now, I've seen this play out in some really interesting ways. Tell me a little bit about the situation in, in Maine. Well, I do have some good news and a positive update, but to set the table, um, there was a bill that was proceeding through the legislature. It is a Democrat supermajority, two-thirds in both houses, um, and basically the bill was going to legalize kidnapping as long as a child claimed that they were a different gender. So it's, it was called an act to protect gender-affirming care, and I don't really doubt that the people behind it were well-intentioned. Um, the legislator who wrote it said that she met with some activists in California who gave her the idea. So that gives you an idea of where this is all coming from. There is an activist complex that is pushing this legislation, but there's a lot of well-meaning people at the state level who are kind of picking it up and running with it. But what it would have done is it basically would have revoked custody for parents who disagree with gender affirming care. That mm. was considered an obstacle to, to health care under the bill. So you could lose custody if you were a religious family, if you were if you had empirically decided based on your own research that this was not good health care or not legitimate health care. If you didn't want to call your child by a name other than what you gave them or you didn't uh, believe in uh, the gender transition and Basically, fundamentally, I see this as a free speech issue and a freedom of religion or religious liberty issue, I should say, because basically the state was going to punish you by breaking up your family and taking away your children if you disagreed with the, the gender orthodoxy that had permeated a lot of our institutions. And one other thing to add that was like really scary about this was the fact that um, if a child from another state, and there was no age limit on this, by the way, this is like any child of any age, but we're thinking it would largely be between 10 and 15 year olds is kind wow. of the court that would affected here. If they ran away from um, a different state and came to Maine, the intention was to make Maine a, a haven for so-called gender affirming care. The police in Maine would not be allowed to reunite them with their family if their family did not agree with uh, their decision to run, run away from home to get gender affirming care. So one of the real concerns was that uh, children are going to be meeting people online who say, you know, trust me, not your parents, and invite them to get on a bus uh, as a, with a complete stranger, a grown adult, and go somewhere else out of state. And that was you know, obviously really troubling. We had an incident just like that uh, here in D.C., actually, because Maryland has a similar law that, that you know, they did pass. Um and a girl from Virginia was trafficked multiple times because the state of Maryland kept rescuing her and refusing to reunite her with her family um, because she said she was no longer a girl. Wow. And, and you know, that word trafficked, that's that's not a throwaway word. That's exactly describing what, what happens. Um, mm -hmm. So I, maybe you're familiar with the case in Oregon, um, a mother who wanted to be part of the foster care system. 
Um, hmm. One of the questions they asked her was, if uh, a child tells you that they are transgender, are you going to take them and give them the gender-affirming care? And she says, I could not do that. You know, I, I, I would be raising them in a, you know, religious household where we, we don't, uh, we don't believe in that. And so she's being told, then you cannot be a foster parent under, mm-hmm. under Oregon's, uh, you know, policies. Yeah. So, I mean, indirectly or really frankly, directly, it is just criminalizing in many ways, Christianity, but it's, you know, Islam, Judaism, any traditional religious teaching, but it's criminalizing uh, dissent on this particular issue, which obviously is one of the most controversial in our public discourse today. It's far from settled, but it also coincides with this epidemic of mental health issues among younger people, especially among young girls. We really, like, that's what concerns me more than anything else. It's really disturbing what we're seeing. These children need help. Um, They need strong guidance from adults in their lives, and they need somebody to help them navigate a storm, not give them this easy answer or supposedly easy answer that, oh, just pretend that you're a boy now, and that means all your problems will melt away. Um, Maybe I'm just getting old, but I was born in the 90s, and they ruthlessly taught us uh, self-acceptance. That was the the, the line in our day, and maybe that went a little too far in the, the culture of narcissism, but I think Mr. Rogers is far preferable to whatever this is supposed to be. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that there is a positive update. I want to give that quickly. Um, thanks to the grassroots outreach um, to Maine legislators um, and uh, you know, from their constituents, from national media, um, there has been some attention on this law. It has been defeated for now. So last week, just around the time the piece came out, uh, there was a meeting of the committee, the Judiciary Committee of the Maine legislature, and they unanimously uh, voted that the bill ought not to pass. So basically, Calls from constituents got to them. Um, the Democrats heard. Republicans were already all opposed and had delayed it as long as they could. But the Democrats heard the message. They said, we support gender-affirming care still, but this is not the right way to do it. I think the issue uh, of interstate, basically, kidnapping was was what got to them. So it is also an important lesson that that kind of activism does work. It is important to make your voice heard, and especially at the state and local level, you can influence things for the better. Well, and, and to, just to point out, you know, Maine is not, you know, a big cultural center. San Francisco, nobody would bat an eye, but, you know, this is, this is traditionally, I don't know if I would say necessarily conservative, but traditional kind of, you know, part of the country when you get out to, when you get out to the rural areas, this, this wasn't common. Now it's, it's kind of, kind of getting there. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I hate to have to say this, but one thing I would, I would say to the audience is, as parents, you really can't trust anybody anymore. You can't trust the schools or the hospitals and the doctors or even the judges because all of them are now receiving training that is inflected with gender ideology. Wow. There has been some pushback on that from conservative activists, and I am optimistic about how the future is going to go and that the classically liberal idea of free speech and 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 debate and open discourse will prevail. But as of right now, much of the professional class has been captured and you have to be extremely vigilant and it's almost an impossible task again because of the mental health crisis among young girls especially today Uh, everyone in their life that's not their parents will tell them that this is what they need to do to solve their problems and their parents are going to give them a much harder answer which is we've got to kind of struggle through this and wrestle with who you are and get to a, a place of comfort at the end of the road um not that gender affirming care has been proven to actually uh reduce depression or suicide because it is not no now i've and i'll share this with you just in in brief i've I've heard from two different people both were mental health experts both of whom had suffered from gender dysphoria when they were younger these are both people probably in their 60s um 
in other words, back when it, it wasn't a thing, but the, the source of their dysphoria, they said, was unresolved um, sexual abuse as a child. And when they were treated for that trauma, the dysphoria, you know, disappeared. And I, I just, I throw that out there, not as it's the one solution, but it does raise some kind of interesting possibilities. There was a story that broke this morning um, that hasn't been verified yet. So obviously take this with a grain of salt, but there's a lawsuit from a family in uh, Montana that um, this they had a, a daughter who was very depressed. Um, she had hallucinated in the past. They took her to the hospital and the hospital basically shipped her to Wyoming against their will um, and she was transitioned. And then eventually they sent her to live with her biological mother who was in Canada and hadn't been in her life for years. So they shipped her out of the country. But it became clear as you read the article, again, this is all alleged, it hasn't been verified, but the mother, the biological mother had been abusive to the girl and all of her siblings. And that was likely the root of this problem in the first place. And that's where they were sending her back to. Oh man, <laughs> out of the frying it's, pan it's and terrifying stuff. into the fire. Well, yeah. I, I'm happy to hear that, you know, at least the for now the, the law has stopped in, in Maine. But I, this, is, this is obviously, like you said, a question that is far from resolved. Um, and it just makes me wonder, in your opinion, is it what would it take? Is it going to take some landmark court decision? I don't. I don't think it's going to solve anything any more than it solved the abortion question, right? No, just like abortion, it's going to be unfortunately a lot of frustrating years of activism. I think this is going to be an easier issue to win than the, the pro life cause is going to have, frankly, in the next few years. But um, you know, there's already a majority uh, public opinion in favor of um, there being two genders and they're correlated with your your sex, you know, when you're born. Um, so I, I, I'm optimistic that through persistence, um, this can be done. And this episode shows that uh, if you reach out to your local representatives, uh, you can influence things for the better. All right. Again, we are talking with James Irwin. He is a Young Voices contributor. James, where can people find you on social media? Uh, my Twitter, or sorry, X, I should say, handle is at Irwin1854, the year the Republican Party was founded. Um, if anybody was curious about that, it's E-R-W-I-N, and um, the piece can be found on National Review Online. <laughs>